Welcome to I Run Radio. Coming up, some advice from an author and expert on how to make running and fitness feel good. I was lucky enough to live in a house with a treadmill, and I made a rule that I was allowed to watch whatever trashy TV I wanted as long as I was on the treadmill, walking or running. And so I, you know, caught every paternity test on Maury Povich. <laughs> I watched all the fights, you know, I did all that. But, and I watched all, I watched like Grease too, like all these guilty pleasure musicals that I loved. And I did it, but I had to be moving on that treadmill. And so I created this positive association of movement felt like a treat. It felt like a little fun. How a husband and coach watched his wife qualify for the Olympics. I had thought we would be, or she would be a little more conservative in the beginning and uh, you know, finish stronger rather than trying to win the race very early. So you know, I was very stressed out early on in, in the race. And you know, by the time she hit 30 to 35K, I thought, okay, she's gonna hold it together. It's going to happen. This is amazing. You know, this is, uh, you know, if it didn't happen on, on in Toronto, I, you know, the chances of it happening would have gone down pretty significantly. And, and who knows, know if it's your last race or your last big opportunity so it was it was pretty you know a pretty big whirlwind (laughs) and running again after hip replacement surgery i've given my life back um it's you know the whole thing that was part of me um was the ability to work out to enjoy that whole socialization my running group on saturday mornings and, you know, all those people that I've been running with for, you know, more than 20 plus years, just to be able to go back to them and uh, leave that parking lot with them and run and stay with them as much as I could. And, uh, and you know, when we finish to go and enjoy our coffee and feel like, kind of say, I'm a runner again. And that meant so much. On this edition of I Run Radio, we'll talk to author and fitness expert Una Duncan on what she calls the Fit Feel Good Movement. Plus, Josh Seafarth, who is the husband and coach of Dana Pitoreski, who qualified to represent Canada in the Olympic Marathon this year. And we'll talk to a runner who a few years ago had hip replacement surgery and thought he might never run again. Let's get things started now with the editor and general manager of iRun, Ben Kaplan. Hello, Ben. Hey there. How are you this week? Cold. Cold, cold, cold. Yeah, there have been some cold days uh, over the last week, but also some mild days. It's been kind of weird. We've had, at least in our part of the country, we've had, uh, you know, a mixture of both. So um, there you go. That's winter in Canada. I'm soft. I don't know. I don't remember feeling as cold. uh, I don't know what it is. Uh, I guess I have to get myself adjusted to it, but I know this week, one night, it was really cold out there, and uh, I just, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this for three months, you know, training at night in the cold. It's a different kind of thing. I mean, I, I know there was an, there's an elite runner who I like a lot, and he says Canadians actually have an advantage when they compete on the international stage if they train outdoors in the winter, um, because in terms of just sheer toughness, right? you know, yeah. Um, but it becomes the exercise becomes a different thing. It's not just about hitting splits or anything. It's a, it's about enduring, you know, a grueling, yeah. you know, freezing cold. It's a really challenging endeavor. So all I'm saying is hats off to all of those listening, training through the winter. Really, it's a it's a difficult endeavor. 
You're so right about that because running in the winter is completely different from running at any other time of year when your focus is on the run itself and not the elements or overcoming the elements. You're just out there doing the workout that you intended to do and you're not thinking about where is the pavement dry, where have they plowed the sidewalk, what road can I run on where there isn't a lot of traffic, uh, you know, which direction is the, is the, is the, uh, are the snow pellets going to be coming from and pelting me in the face, you know, those, ki- <laughs> those kinds of things. Yeah. You're not thinking about those things at all in, in, winter, in uh, summer, spring, and fall. But in the winter, it's just about that. And then you get back from a run, and it's almost like, do I even need to look at my watch to see what my time was or anything like that? No, I went out and ran for 45 minutes in the snow and cold, and that's all that matters, right? You know, and we can put, uh, you know, they make shoes with little rocket ships on them, and we've made things that, you know, you can have all sorts of advanced equipment, but what we don't have are gloves that can keep your hands warm in this thing. And if you have, like, a complete balaclava, whatever, it's, you know, your entire face is covered up, but it's, it's it, you know, it, the run is really, if you can survive the cold, it everything else is basically irrelevant. Yeah. So, it's interesting you mentioned the gloves, because I run with a couple of different guys, and typically halfway through the run, they take their gloves off because they're so warm. And for me... My hands are the first things to start freezing. My my thumbs yeah. and my fingertips start to go, and I wear two levels of uh, two layers of gloves when I'm running. Uh, so yeah. I actually try to double up on that. And I'm my hands are still freezing when these guys are taking their gloves off halfway through a run when it's minus ten. And I don't I don't get that at all. I know everybody's different, but my hands are the first thing to go. You a couple of years ago, I believe, perhaps it was two years ago you made the move in the winter to the treadmill and you'll still run outside, but you know, for the majority of, and I was like, huh, this guy's a real wimp. (laughs) And this year, and this year I'm right there with you. So I think in every runner's life, perhaps they hit up. There's a a time comes when you say, you know what? Uh, I think, uh, I I think I'll do it indoors and you can get a great workout. You can get, you can sweat, you can run faster. You can do, all sorts of things. You can watch TV? Much easier. <laughs> no, whatever I do inside the gym is much easier than what I am doing outside when it's freezing cold. Yeah, and I still do both. I, I will still run outside in the winter two or three times a week, uh, but I do find the flexibility of the treadmill and the, uh, you know, the... The uh, well, the warmth. Let's be honest about it. Uh, but it's funny because in the in the spring and fall and and uh, in most of the summer, except when it's super hot, I don't go anywhere near the treadmill. And I feel like you know, why did I ever use that thing? You know, how could yeah. I ever? How could I stand to run for even more than fifteen minutes on that thing? It's so boring. And then the winter comes, yeah. and I'm like, hey, ah, treadmill, right on. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's uh, it's really a radical thing. Yeah. All right, good stuff, Ben. Thank you for joining us. Stay warm, and we'll talk to you next week. Appreciate it, my friend. Bye-bye. Ben Kaplan, iRun's editor and general manager. Coming up next, author and fitness expert, Una Duncan. This winter, participate in the biggest winter multi-sport event in the world, solo or in a team relay. Complete, on a continuous basis, the five disciplines of the pentathlon. Cycling, running, Nordic skiing, skating, and snowshoeing. Choose between 17 different challenges. There's one for you. The Pentathlon des Neiges of Quebec, 
presented by MEC from February 22nd to March 1st on the Plains of Abraham in Quebec City. Be part of it. Una Duncan is an author and fitness expert who is very outspoken about how we have to overcome the challenges of getting out the door and going for a run. She says staying in shape should make us feel good. Una, it's great to talk with you. Thank you for joining us on Iron Radio. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about how you got into fitness. I know running is part of your story, so tell us a little bit about that. Actually, running is how I started. So... Um, you know, Mark, I always hesitate to tell this story because I have clients who um, will tell me, oh, you know, I wish I could get in shape, but I don't have the time, to which I always respond, and I'm sure most people respond, well, there is no time. You, no one's got extra time. We've all got the same amount of time. You just need to prioritize it, which I believe. However, I was so stuck in this I don't have any time uh, mentality, and then I was an actor, and I was uh, on a show in the middle of nowhere, and all I had to do was show up for work at 7 p.m. for makeup. And then after that, and, you know, of course, we, we drank all night after that and slept until noon. But even so, I had about seven hours to kill every day. And it was the one time that I actually really had nothing else to do. So I decided to go for the most tentative run. And I, <laughs> I remember I walked away from the actor's house. They didn't want to see me because I was in horrible shape. You heard what I just said about drinking all night. So I was in awful shape, and I didn't even have runners or anything like that. I think I actually did my first run in my, like, Spice Girl boots, which were the only footwear that I had. And I had, and so I walked away so no one else could see me, and I made myself a bet to see if I could maybe shuffle, jog, gasp, because I was a heavy smoker as well, for um, one song on my Walkman. And then I kind of, you know, walked and heaved and tried to catch my breath for the next song, and then I would try and shuffle for the next song. And so I did that sort of, you know, rudimentary interval style training. Um, and I kind of made, and then by the end of the summer, I was like, I can go for two songs. And that's how I started to very gradually get fit. Right on. Well, good for you. Obviously, you've taken it to a much higher level than that. But I, I've been <laughs> looking at your website and reading some of the stuff you've written, the message, which I think is an important one, especially at this time of year when when people are thinking about getting back in shape and setting all kinds of ambitious goals for themselves and trying new things and reading articles yeah. and hearing about this diet or about this exercise routine. Uh, it's re- a really important message. Your message, as I understand it, is that this is about feeling good. It's about making yourself yeah. feel good, not looking good on Instagram or or showing off to people, I did so many uh, kilometers or I did so many push-ups or chin-ups yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, I am... That is one of the biggest problems I have with the messaging around fitness right now, or at least what people are absorbing, because I know so many people feel like if they play boot camp sergeant with themselves, they really kind of beat themselves up. So, for example, a lot of people look in the mirror and think that if they allow themselves to feel happy and with what they see in the mirror, then they will lose their motivation to get fitter. And but but actually, those feel, or if they if they don't beat themselves up for eating a whole you know, a box of Timbits or whatever, um, then they will, then they'll probably do it again. If I don't make myself feel awful, then I'll just do it again. But in fact, feeling awful after any of those events, after looking in the mirror, overeating or skipping your workout or whatever it's going to be, that actually, that those feelings, those feelings of guilt and shame are statistically, they lead to more weight gain. 
because it starts this vicious cycle where we will do anything to alleviate that pain. And so what do we do? We numb out with more TV or Timbits or whatever is our sort of numbing agent of choice. And it's, so we actually have to feel good. And it's that reinforcing positive behaviors with feeling good that is going to make us do those positive behaviors more. And it's something that people aren't getting. So they think they can play boot camp sergeant and beat themselves up into good behavior, but no one has ever hated themselves into a body that they've loved. Yeah. That never happens. I think that's such a great point because, number one, what is the point of all of this unless it makes us feel good, right? Exactly. That um, is the ultimate point. Yeah. Why is life worth living if you can't feel good about yourself while you're doing whatever you're doing? So obviously you want to do some things that are hard. You want to challenge yourself. And it doesn't mean being lazy or, or... uh, sitting on the couch all day, you, you want to test yourself, but you want to get satisfaction out of that, not feel like it's punishment. And yes, the second yeah, no, part that's of it, exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Um, just just quickly about that. So I think that when people sometimes I say that you know you should feel good, people are like, well, I feel good when I've had two glasses of wine and a pizza or whatever, and I'm like, oh, but you're mistaking pleasure with feeling good. Yeah, and so with happiness. And so happiness is usually feeling like pleasure is usually environmental. It's from ex- some external source, like, or it's sensual. And it's just it's something fleeting in the moment, it's usually coming from an external source. Happiness is when you feel good in yourself and your body. It's the difference between someone saying, oh, you've lost weight. And you get that little hit of like, oh, versus feeling so good in your skin that you don't care what other people think. That's, That's a- happiness versus pleasure. Right on. Uh, the other part of it that I think is important, the second half of it for me is, and I've talked to, to people about this from a, a diet perspective, a nutrition perspective, nothing that feels like punishment is sustainable, right? You, you yes. can't, if you hate working out or you hate the workouts you're doing, if you hate running or if you run so much that you just dread it all the time, that's yes. not going to, you're not going to keep doing that, right? It's oh, it's not something, sure. so... If you in, if you turn it into something you enjoy, something something that you take pleasure in, something that's satisfying, then that's sustainable. But otherwise, it's not. Absolutely, and I think that one of the best tricks we can do for ourselves when we are early exercisers is find some way to link pleasure to the exercise. And I'm not going to lie, it is going to feel hard when you first get going. And so what you've got to do is you've got to find some way to make it pleasurable so you can build that positive habit loop. So what I did when I got home from that theater gig, I was lucky enough to live in a house with a treadmill. And I made a rule that I was allowed to watch whatever trashy TV I wanted as long as I was on the treadmill walking or running. And so I, you know, caught every paternity test on Maury Povich. I watched all the fights, you know, I did all that. But, and I watched all, I watched like Grease too, like all these guilty pleasure musicals that I loved. And I did it, but I had to be moving on that treadmill. And so I created this positive association of movement felt like a treat. It felt like a little fun. Because a lot of times people say, they're, you know, the BS that goes through their head when they're lying in bed and thinking about why they actually don't have to go for the run that they said they would go to. They often say, well, I've been so good. I deserve a treat. I deserve the treat of sleeping in. And what we've got to do is we've got to flip it so the treat feels like the run. The run feels like the treat that you deserve because you feel so good. That's a great way to look at it. And I, I love that message about getting on the treadmill and watching uh, watching bad television. Good for you. Yeah. Um, oh, it's great. It worked. Yeah. Uh, what other advice do you have from your book? Because I know you break it down very well in the book in terms of uh, what are the challenges we have to overcome and how to overcome them. Right. Okay, thank you. So part one is called Get Your Head Out of Your 
butt. And this is all the mental stuff that no one does when they embark on a big new healthy living initiative. So this is where, you know, we talk about whether it's a diet or a lifestyle and whether that matters. And we talk about, you know, how to get super clear on your why and what you're going to do when things get hard. So by the end of chapter one, you've got your mindset right. And again, this is what everyone is not doing and why everyone, quote unquote, and this is the language I always hear, falls off the wagon. So once you've got your mindset done, part two, and because I'm a sort of weight loss specialist, is just tell me what the beep to do to get skinny already. And this is where I go for nutritional principles and exercise and stuff like that. And I talk about creating a, a habit loop. Part three is called How Not to Be a Big Fat Quitty McQuitter Face. And this <laughs> is where I tell people how to, you know, enroll the people in your life, the importance of social support. I call it the power of your peeps. I talk about how to break up with your BS. So again, it's those stories we tell ourselves when we're lying in bed thinking, oh, I don't really have to do this, do I? And, um, and I also talk about, oh, the power of small wins. And this is another thing that is so powerful. We live in a culture where we really value that all or nothing. You know, I'm either doing a marathon or I'm not running at all, kind of, you know? Right. Um, I do my full, full whatever, my full 10K every day or whatever people do, or I'm not getting out of bed. And so what I really want to encourage people is in order to reinforce the habit loop on the day when you wake up and you're like, oh, I feel like I got a cold coming in and, you know, my, I was up all night with my baby or whatever. Instead of saying, I've got to go for that 10K, think, what if I just got up and walked around the block? And I know that so many of your listeners are just repelled by that thought, like, what? That's, there's no point in that. That's ridiculous. But the point in that is there's a few points to that. One, you will reinforce your habit loop. And every time you reinforce that habit loop, you are moving towards automaticity because that's what we want. We want this to feel automatic and pleasurable. Two, it sort of reinforces your identity. And this is so important because let me, t let me ask you something, Mark. Is there a difference between saying, I go for runs versus saying, I am a runner? Absolutely there is, yeah. Right? Yeah. Somebody who says, I am a runner is going to run when they are on vacation. They're going to run when they're on, it's their birthday. They're going to run. They're going to find a way to do it because it's who they are. Whereas if someone says, yeah, yeah, I go for runs sometimes, they're, they're going to fall off the wagon as soon as it gets inconvenient. And so when you, go, when you get up and you're like, you know what, I am not feeling my best. I probably won't make it the 10K, but let me just see what I can do. Those, those small wins are so, so powerful to not be a big fat quitting the quitter face. Yeah, and what I love about that too is that if you say, you know what, rather than not run, I'm I'm I meant to do 10k. I don't feel like it, so I'm just going to go out and run three or four k. Uh, once yeah. you once you run the first two k, you might That's end right. up you might end up doing eight, nine, ten k anyway. Because once That's the the, right. the hardest step is the first one. Once you get going, Absolutely. it gets easier after that, right? Absolutely, it's the moment you get out of bed that you've won. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. yeah. And you put and those shoes on and you go out the door. That's right. And that's the muscle you're building. You know, the muscle you're building is the muscle that says, I do what I intend to do. That is the kind of person that I am. And that's the hardest muscle to build. But once you build that muscle, when it comes to running, the ripple effect in the rest of your life, you're going to see that there too. You're going to be the kind of person who does what they say they're going to do in their relationships, in their work in their everything. So that is enormously valuable. 
It's such a great point and one of the most valuable lessons of running, I think, in any other fitness uh-huh. regimen. Una, yeah. such terrific advice, great perspective. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us on I Run Radio. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That is author and fitness expert Una Duncan. And the title of her book is one that I, you know, I can't say the full title of it on the air, but it is Healthy as F. Coming up next, how Dana Pitoreski got fast enough to qualify for the Olympics. This winter, participate in the biggest winter multi-sport event in the world, solo or in a team relay. Complete on a continuous basis the five disciplines of the pentathlon. Cycling, running, Nordic skiing, skating, and snowshoeing. Choose between 17 different challenges. There's one for you. The Pentathlon de Neige of Quebec, presented by MEC from February 22nd to March 1st on the Plains of Abraham in Quebec City. Be part of it. At the Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon in October, Dana Pitoreski didn't just achieve a personal best. She qualified to represent Canada in this year's Olympic Marathon in Tokyo. It was a huge race for her. We talked to her about it afterwards. You can listen to that interview in our archives at irun.ca. Dana is coached by her husband, Josh Seafarth, who joins us now on iRun Radio. Josh, thank you for being with us. Hey, thank you uh, for having me. And congratulations to you and Dana on Dana getting into the Olympics. Uh, That's a a pretty amazing accomplishment, and it came as a result of a lot of hard work and uh, and a new training plan, from what I gather. So uh, just first of all, before we talk about uh, the mechanics of all of this and the lessons from it, what was that moment like when when Dana actually hit that time and, and realized she had a ticket to the Olympics? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I guess, confirmation that, uh, you know, everything we've been doing over the last 10 years was what we should have been doing. Um, you know, I think a lot of people probably go through working towards and pursuing goals and, you know, <laughs> and very often they, you know, they don't achieve them or they fail. And this happened to be a very ambitious one. And, you know, had we, had we not achieved it, uh, you know, there'd be a small part of us that probably looked back and thought, did we do something wrong? Should we have done something different? Um, but I think it was sort of confirmation that, you know, we're on the right track and we're doing what we should be doing. Yeah, I'd say so. But uh, just describe uh, the emotions that you and Dana went through when when that uh, when that goal was achieved. Yeah, yeah, it was it was elation at the finish. I think you know through the race, um, it was a bit of a roller coaster for me watching or, or running around the course and seeing the split times during the race. Um, we went into it knowing and, and we're pretty confident that you know, winning the race. And running Olympic standard was well within the realm of possible. I had thought we would be, or she would be, a little more conservative in the beginning, and uh, you know, finish stronger rather than trying to win the race very early. So, you know, I was very stressed out early on in the race, and you know, by the time she had thirty to thirty-five k, I thought, okay, she's going to hold it together. It's going to happen. Um, this is amazing. You know, this is, uh, you know, if it didn't happen on, on in Toronto, I, you know, the chances of it happening would have gone down pretty significantly. And, and who knows, you know, if it's your last race, or your last big opportunity. So it was, it was pretty, 
you know, a pretty big whirlwind. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Um, and so how did Dana get faster? And, and tell us a little bit about the program that, that you put together uh, to, to help her do that. Yeah, so it wasn't really a, a different program than she had done in the past. And I think that's it's probably something a lot of people can learn from. You know, there's no magic workout. There's no singular specific thing that, that works. Um, it was just consistent work over a long period of time with thought put into how we were going to progress you know, between marathons. Uh, you know, we, each each marathon build is a little bit different, and you know, you, we might increase the mileage, uh, the, the average weekly volume very slightly each time. We might increase the the maximum long run or the number of long runs we do by you know a couple kilometers or one or two extra long runs. It's just small incremental you know improvements or increases. Every time we build up to a marathon, you know, and over the course of three years and, and six or seven marathon builds, you know, suddenly you go from, you know, running 140 kilometers a week as like a really big week to that being an easy week and 170 kilometers a week being a really big week. But it takes a lot of time to absorb that sort of progression. Um, uh, so I think like one of the big lessons is, is it's going to take longer than you think it's going to take, whether it's you know training to compete at the Olympics or training to qualify for the Boston Marathon or just training to run a marathon. You know, it, it might take you a number of years, so you should factor that into your your plan. Doesn't mean you, you, know, you shouldn't pursue it, but it, it's just going to take a longer period of time, particularly when it comes to events like the marathon, which are very long and exhausting yeah and you know i i love hearing you say that because i think that is one of the greatest lessons from long distance running is there are no shortcuts uh you can't go from point a to point b uh quickly you've, you've got to work at it over a long period of time and uh and i think it's a great metaphor for life there are so many things in life that are similar you know learning a new language or or developing a new skill, or uh, all kinds of other things. You get there one step at a time, building slowly. You don't, uh, you don't do it overnight, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes years and years and years to maximize endurance performance, or to build a company, or to you know become a doctor, or whatever, whatever it may be. It's there's there's no shortcuts. There's no secrets. You know, we released some of Dana's training on, on IRUN's website, and you know, people probably read it, and there's nothing exceptional about it. I mean, there's workouts in there that many people can probably do, but it's just being consistent and doing doing the work over a very prolonged period of time and being somewhat stubborn <laughs> and, and, and confident that it's going to work out. What other lessons are there from, from this process that the two of you went through together? Yeah, I think I think one of the big ones um, it, it might be a little less relevant to you know your, your average runner who has a number of other things going on in their lives and, and running is not the singular focus. But um, you know, I think that designing or building an environment at home that is optimal for training or for running or for whatever you want to achieve is, is critical. You know, we don't we don't do training camps. We don't go to warm weather camps. We don't go to altitude because here in Vancouver, we, 
we have everything we need right out our outside of our front door, so we, we don't need to disrupt training, and we do our, our best training here. And, and, you know, that means, you know, all of our workouts, sort of our key sessions are done on loops and roads that are within a five-minute drive from our house. Um, so so everything we need is, is all in this one place, and, you know, we don't have to drive anywhere to go do runs or travel or, or, or chase anything like that because for for almost every athlete the majority of the training you're ever going to do is going to be from home yeah. so it needs to be it needs to be the place where the best training happens yeah that's a great yeah. point and when you talk about the environment i think that's so important as well because it is about more than just the actual training it's what you're doing when you're not training too right oh yeah yeah i mean yeah you absorb and, and get better when you're resting, as they say. The training breaks you down, and you know everything you do between training is is there to build you back up. Uh, so you know things like sleep and nutrition and massage and physio and, and therapy and all that stuff, and even psychological training. That stuff all factors in. Yeah, was there a mental component to all of this for Dana? Was we've talked to her before about uh, about how she's gotten to this point? But um, was you know, tell me a little bit about the the uh, the process mentally that you have to go through to to take your running to another level and reach the status of being an Olympic athlete. Yeah, I think every runner goes through, or every athlete, or every human uh you know goes through periods of self-doubt particularly when you've been working on something for a very long time and maybe it doesn't look like it's it's coming together for you um you know dana does work with a sports psychologist periodically just to, to you know have someone to formally go through those things with her um but I think the biggest thing you need to have is a, sort of a steadfast belief in, in what you're pursuing um and, and, you know, you need to be committed to the pursuit more so than the result. And, and that can keep you on track. You know, Dana's run seven or eight marathons, or at least tried to run that many. And more than half of them have not gone to plan or gone well. Um, but, you know, she had belief in herself. And, and you know, now... You know, now it all came together and it worked out. And yeah. and I think that this is going to be sort of a catalyst. You know, just for Dana, there are a number of athletes in Toronto and this year who have had breakthrough performances or have raced to the abilities that they've had in training and maybe not had executed on race day, you know, until this year. And I think that's going to open the floodgates, maybe not next year being an Olympic year, but the years after and between 2020 and 2024, you know, I can reasonably see the, the marathon and half marathon records going down a number of times by a number of minutes, you know, prior to the 2024 Olympics because, wow. you know, people believe now and, and people have seen, you know, what, what you can do. And, and then there's also this critical mass of runners who are, you know, really knocking on the door of those types of performances I'm, I'm sure there are runners who are in the field, or runners who weren't necessarily there, who have raced Dana or run with Dana before, and look at it and say, "Well, now Dana's run 229 flat. I can do that, or I can do it better. I beat Dana before. Whatever. Dana's just a normal human being, <laughs> and, and you know, it might 
it likely will motivate them and drive them to to, to those sorts of performances. Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, there is that mental barrier. We've, we've seen it before with the four-minute mile or now the two-hour marathon. Uh, and, um, and there is, uh, you know, there is that breakthrough moment that happens and that sort of propels other people to do it and when you think about it it's it's amazing because we've come a long way from a time when there were no canadians in the olympic marathon and now it's really competitive so that's really exciting josh i really appreciate you joining us today thank you so much congratulations again and good luck to you and dana as the olympic journey continues awesome thank you for having me that's josh seafarth who is the husband and coach of Dana Pitoreski, who's on her way to the Olympics. Coming up next, running again after hip replacement surgery. This winter, participate in the biggest winter multi-sport event in the world, solo or in a team relay. Complete on a continuous basis the five disciplines of the pentathlon. Cycling, running, Nordic skiing, skating, and snowshoeing. Choose between 17 different challenges. There's one for you. The Pentathlon des Neiges of Quebec, presented by MEC from February 22nd to March 1st on the Plains of Abraham in Quebec City. Be part of it. I've interviewed Andrew Murray many times in his role as the CEO of Mad Canada, but we've never talked about running before. Andrew is an accomplished marathon runner and triathlete who a few years ago underwent hip replacement surgery and wondered whether he would ever run again. Andy, thank you for being with us. Thanks for the opportunity, Mark. I really appreciate it. And you and I have spoken before about the work that you do with Mad Canada, uh, but I never knew that we had mutual friends like Rick Shaver and Tom Lettner, both of whom have been on this podcast, and that you were a runner and triathlete as well. So tell me a little bit about how you got into the sport. Well, um, Tom Lettner has been a longtime friend and uh, not only uh, from uh, doing triathlons together, but like a good friend personally, and the same with uh, Rick Shaver. And so uh, we've done many Ironman together. We spent many hours uh, training together. Um, and, you know, I was uh, trained a lot with Tommy, especially in his, uh, you know, acceptance into Hawaii Ironman. And, you know, we all worked hard to get Tommy there to qualify for Kona and you know he went back a number of times and he's just you know at his age coming up to 80 years old uh just you know we all want to be Tommy because (laughs) he's in fabulous uh shape and you know for his age his running times you know it's just right and he can't meet a nicer guy um so he's just a wonderful guy and a real inspiration and uh I was glad that, you know, we're considered friends and I could help him in some of his goals. Yeah, terrific. And um, and so what is it that you enjoy about running? Well, for me, you know, being the CEO for Mad Canada for the past 24 years, it's a, a very trying job as far as balancing travel, uh, human loss, and, and dealing with, you know, politicians on trying to get legislative changes, you know, just sometimes just to go out there and go for a run, go for a swim, go for a bike ride with different people that don't even know what I do for a living, um, just to talk running, talk training, 
and just have kind of a spectrum of, you know, you get off in a different world, you can put those other things aside for the time being and then just enjoy it. So it was a real good balance for me. And it was also a good balance. My wife is a very good runner, qualified for a couple of times for Boston Marathon. So we had that and it's turned out my my two children are very good runners as well. Um, so it's kind of been a family passion and, and now we can enjoy, you know, the odd family run together. Oh, terrific. That sounds great. And, you know, when you say uh, you can run with people and they don't even know what your job is, uh, that really resonates with me because uh, I find running to be this great equalizer. And I've I've been in clinics where we've trained for a half marathon or a marathon together. And uh, you talk about all kinds of things, family, running, uh, and uh, only maybe partway through the clinic or even not till the end of the clinic do you find out what these people do for a living. So uh, it's just, you know, it's just great common denominator among people. Yeah, because, you know, when I go with other runners, I want to talk about running and, and talk about what their goals are. And it's, it's just a whole different world together. And it's amazing how you connect. And then, you know, just like my relationship with Tommy and Rick, you know, it connects, you know, through sport. And then you connect through, you know, a lot of other interests. And then the next thing you know, your personal friends and your family and, you know, all connects there. And it just takes on a relationship in itself so it's uh but sports is a great as you said a great equalizer a great opportunity to meet people from all walks of life and you know some of my best experiences have been going you know to other countries to you know go for a race and experience and meet other people and or i always remember the time when i was doing ironman canada you know meeting people from europe and you know, we're in that last couple of miles, you know, after being out there for hours and hours trying to finish in the bond shift of, you know, going across that finish line together and not as competitors, you know, because we've all realized that the winners have long, you know, been done and it's just a matter of finishing for all of us. Yeah. So tell me about some of those races. Are there ones that stand out for you as, as uh, prominent memories? Um, I, I think, you know, I finished five Ironman. Uh, races, which I think that in itself is an accomplishment. Absolutely. And, you know, with with one of them, I was able to meet a personal goal and go uh, well under 13 hours, which was my ultimate goal. And, you know, I, I've done around 25-plus uh, marathons and, you know, finally broke, you know, 330 uh, barrier for me. Never was good enough to qualify for Boston, but... Uh, you know, running under 3.30 was uh, an accomplishment and uh, it's something I'm, you know, proud of. And so just the fact that, you know, you did your best and it's like with my job, I always try to do the best because I have a lot of people that are counting on me. And so it was always great to use races as an opportunity um, to do your best to walk away feeling I gave it everything I had. And, you know, in the training sessions, I always use those as uh, an opportunity to socialize, to talk, find out how people are doing. And I always had this internal piece that I could always race better than I trained. Um, and I think that's because I concentrated on the races and socialized during the training, but got enough training in so that I could really turn it up on race day. 
So four years ago, you had hip replacement surgery. Is that right? I did. Uh, Almost to the day now that we're talking. Okay. So four years ago. Yeah. Tell me what led to that. Well, basically, I went from running to Ironman to ultramarathons, and then I ran into a series of uh, injuries, which ultimately was my you know, hip deteriorating at a rapid pace. And so um, at that point, you know, the the surgeon said there was nothing else that they could do except uh, hip replacement. And, of course, you know, you're worried about, will I ever run again? So you try all kinds of other type of options, which none of them worked. Um, and, you know, I was basically limping uh, into the surgery room four years ago. And so I was really nervous that when I came out of surgery, I I said to myself, I'd love to run again. And, you know, slowly I put that competitive edge back into my rehab. I worked really hard. Every day I'd go to the pool, um, you know, two weeks after the staples were removed, and I would walk in the pool um, up and down, sideways, backwards for two hours, for about three months and then as the leg got a little stronger and I was allowed a little bit more motion I started uh, a mix of walking stretching and water running and that went on the better part of another four to six months and within the year I was back to a very you know slow uh, jog and uh Got a little faster uh, the last couple of years, um, and this year I uh, competed in the uh, the race for the Toad, which was a 12.5K uh, cross-country run. I did that with my daughter, my wife, and my son. Well, four of us did it together, and uh, I was able to run with my daughter and uh, meet the uh, the race goal that she had in mind. So um, I felt really good about that. And that was the ultimate for me was I was able to come back, you know, work myself into good enough fitness uh, to run again and competitively uh, do a race and, you know, feel good about it. I'm never going to win a race, but uh, just the fact that I'm out there uh, running and, uh enjoying that social part and I can do it with my family and friends again. It's just so rewarding. It's, it's like a highlight. I, and I never expected that, um, you know, post-surgery. Sure. Yeah. What does it mean to you to be able to do this again and, and to do it with your family and be in races again? Uh, it, it's, it's like I've given my life back. Um, it's, a, you know, the whole thing that was part of me um, was the ability to work out, to enjoy that whole socialization my running group on Saturday mornings, which Rick and Tom are part of, our South Downs Riders group, and, you know, all those people that I've been running with for, you know, more than 20-plus years, just to be able to go back to them and uh, leave that parking lot with them and run and stay with them as much as I could. And, uh, and you know, when we finish, to go and enjoy our coffee and feel like kind of say I'm a runner again and that meant so much where for the first couple of years I was with the walking group and not to say that there's nothing wrong with that but I really wanted to be in the runners group yeah 
Well, congratulations, Andy. That's fantastic. Uh, it was obviously a long road back with a lot of hard work, so you deserve a lot of credit for that. And um, I'm sure that you will be an inspiration to lots of people who have the same fear that uh, you did uh, when when they're confronted with hip replacement surgery, and maybe they can find a way back to participating in events again as well. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Oh, you're most welcome, Mark. Thanks very much for the opportunity. That's runner and triathlete Andrew Murray, who is also the CEO of Mad Canada. And that's it for this edition of I Run Radio. I hope you can join us next week. Thank you for listening. Have a great week.